I've never really felt uh, ready uh, for this for this book. It's always been my favorite book, and uh, in fact, one time I was backslid and pastoring in Texas, and uh, to show you how backslid I was, I spent all our money on a Bible. It was one of the last true seal skin Bibles. And uh, it was like, this was 30 years ago, 35 years ago, and it was beautiful. Beautiful. Now, God was not pleased because they didn't pay my bills, but I had a good Bible to preach out of. This didn't have any power to preach. But uh, we had a dog, a one-eyed dog. And I, I don't know how I got up on my desk or something, but that dog thumbed through that Bible and chewed Ephesians <laughs> right out of it. I couldn't believe it. And I, and I was so mad. I said, you're about to be a blind dog. <laughs> I thought, why couldn't he chew out Leviticus? Or something, Chronicles. But, I mean, it was like he went right to Ephesians. There it is. So I, I took my chastening from the Lord. But I've always seen the book of Ephesians as like just something that really speaks to me and requires a certain level of spiritual uh, life before you would launch such a series as this. So I, I'm, I'm uh, still not sure I'm there, but we're, I, I do feel like God wants us to do this. Um, Ruth Paxson said that Ephesians was the Grand Canyon of Scripture because it's so the vistas that it gives you theologically are so panoramic and breathtaking. And... Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his, uh, he preached about five or six years through it. But he says that Romans, the book of Romans, is the purest expression of the gospel. But the book of Ephesians is the most majestic expression. That is, most inspiring. That Romans gives you such theological structure. But Ephesians gives you such a magnificent inspiration regarding the gospel. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones goes on to say that he thinks that the book of Ephesians is the crowning achievement of Paul's life and letters. It's quite a statement from someone known as a great expositor of the Bible. My goal here as we look at, look at this, and you can see that it's from the Apostle Paul. He says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, my, my goal here is to try to let Paul talk to us. I mean, if he's writing to them, what, what would he say if he was here? And how would he say it? 
What would the Apostle Paul say? And <clears throat> there is something, um, just a quick, quick little technical note. Usually Paul's letters all have uh, personal references in them. Like First uh, Corinthians, he'll write to people, he tells them, I uh, names the names he's, that he's referring to in the book of Romans. If you've read Romans, you know that at the end he lists about 12 to 15 people. He says, tell all of them I said hello. And here in Ephesians, he has not a single personal reference. In fact, look at uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give, uh, since I have heard of your faith in the Lord, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Notice, I, since I have heard of your faith in the Lord, it's almost like he didn't know these people. He's writing to someone he's never seen. And that's, that's difficult to, to understand because according to Acts chapter 19, he was there for two years. But let me give you a, this map. Give me the next uh, slide. Here is a map. Um, in Revelation, John calls it, we call these the seven churches of Asia. Well, Jerusalem's way down there in the corner. Paul's missionary journeys took him up to Ephesus, which is on the coast. Now, that creates kind of a circle. And what a lot of people think is Ephesus, or the, the book of Ephesians, is actually a letter and you, that called a circular letter. And what you would do is you would leave the name of the people uh, blank. Paul, an apostle of Christ by the will of God, to the saints in blank, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And, and uh, what you would do is then the messenger would fill in the church that he was taking it to. And so it would just make the circle. When he went to Smyrna, he'd fill in to the church in Smyrna. When he went to the next one at Perg Pergamos, he'd fill that in. Thyatira, Sardis, right down the line. Till, till you made that circle. And this may be why he doesn't name any names, because he's writing to all those Gentile churches that he's never been to. And that would mean us. That perfectly fits us. He's never been here. We're a primarily Gentile church. And I, I think this makes this book so relevant to us. And... And so I'm, I'm kind of excited about what, what the apostle would say if he was here. Now, let me say a word about the, the visit he made to Ephesus uh, in the book of Acts, the chapter 19 and 20. Actually, Acts 18, 19, and 20 tells you about uh, Ephesus. And Acts 19 and 10 says that Paul preached for two years in Ephesus and that all of Asia, that whole section, that green section, was penetrated 
with the Word of God and the Gospel of Christ. And he, the headquarters was in, in Ephesus. That's in Acts 19 and 10. He preached for two years in all the province of Asia had a gospel-preaching witness from people going out from those churches. And it wasn't just um, him a preaching station, but demons were put on notice. Demons fled. Um, in uh, Acts chapter 19, when you read about Paul's visitation to, uh, to Ephesus, it says that uh, the people saw demons cast out left and right, and so they began to cast out or try to cast out demons. And they'd say, in the name of Jesus and of Paul, come out of this man. And the demons would say, Jesus we know and Paul we know, but who are you? And in Acts 19, it says they would jump on the guy and beat him up. They, even the demons, recognized the name of Paul and were scared of it, putting it in the category of Jesus. In Acts 19 and 12, and I think we have this verse we can show you, but this is, this is in Ephesus. This is when Paul went to Ephesus and preached for two years. He would, uh, he would have a handkerchief and, and an apron that had touched him. And people would take these handkerchiefs. Now, handkerchief, I mean, I'm thinking a tissue, used tissue. Right? Isn't that what you do? Isn't that what a handkerchief is? And you take that, and instead of throwing it away, you take it and lay it on a sick person. That would be weird. Here, I have a tissue that I'm done with. Just put this on your body. But when they put Paul's tissues on people, they would be, their illnesses were cured, and the demons would leave. And it, it, what it shows you is the absolute power of God in a fully surrendered apostle that, see, we, don't, we, we think that there's certain laws of nature that are inevitable and, and irrevocable, uh, like if you're exposed to germs, you're going to get sick. And normally, that's the norm. That's the laws of nature. But God can reverse the laws of nature. And also in Acts 19, there's this stadium uh, full of people because Paul is preaching and so everybody starts... Um, uh, being converted, there's this great revival, and churches are built, and Ephesus is in a revival, and and they're the, the they have this big temple. Show us the temple of Artemis, or the the this was one of the seven wonders of the world. I want you to look down at the steps. The people are so small you can hardly view them. Look at these huge trees. These trees are 25 feet high, and this huge temple. 
And it says in Acts 19, um, uh, in chapter Acts, I forget what chapter, but in Acts 19, it says that the people all came together from in the city of Ephesus. They crammed into this temple and they began to shout, Great is Artemis, great is Artemis, great is Artemis, to the, at the top of their lungs for two hours. Their God, Artemis, the goddess of love. And they, it, was, it was full of prostitutes. And you go, this is the coastline. In fact, you can even see the sea in the distance. And, and sailors from all over the world come there, thousand prostitutes, and worship But they fill that place up because they see what's happening in the church and Paul and the power of God and the miracles and they're afraid they're going to lose their God. Great is our God. Great is our God. Let's go to 2,000 years later. This is the same temple. I put up there, wah, wah. Artemis, not so great. So, this tremendous revival. So here's real quick, and let's just let me just let's just put these up here real quick, uh, Julie. Here's um, here's the condition, the circumstances when the book of, of Ephesians is written. Number one. Paul is in prison. Years have gone by. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ on behalf of you all. He's a prisoner now. Uh, He's not, in fact, he will probably never get out of this prison alive. It's around 60, 62, 63 A.D. Nero is the Caesar. And they're throwing Christians in jail left and right, feeding them to the lions in the Colosseum. The revival is over. The church is in decline. This is another thing. The the revival that happened 20, 25 years ago in Ephesus, this is 25 years later. Paul's in prison. The revival is no more. Do you remember what Jesus said to this same church, the church at Ephesus, when in Revelation 2, verse 4, I know your works and endurance, you keep the true doctrines, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. That was written to the church in Ephesus because this is 25 years later. The demons aren't afraid anymore. Who has the mirror, who has the handkerchiefs of Paul? We don't even know what become of them. The church is in this great decline. And guess who's the pastor? I wonder if anybody's thinking. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, Paul writes to this young Timothy. 1 and 2 Timothy, by the way, the final two letters Paul wrote. He's in prison. 
and he writes to Timothy. And he says, I urged you when I was in Greece, stay in Ephesus and teach sound doctrine. Timothy, the young pastor, he's there probably as the pastor in Ephesus. And a final thing is um, the society was very hostile to the faith. Uh, Nero's the emperor, about about to launch the great persecution of 62, 63 A.D. Paul and Peter and many other wonderful Christians will die in that persecution. If you had an apostle who'd visited your church Great miracles had been accomplished and revival had broken out, affected the whole city. In fact, affect all of Asia had heard the word. 25 years later, put, uh, put this passage, 2 Timothy 1, 14, 15. Look at this. This is Paul's last letter of his life, the last letter he wrote to the pastor at Ephesus. He says, 2 Timothy 1, 15. You know that everyone in the province of Asia has deserted me. Wow. Including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord have mercy on Onesiphorus because he would often refresh me and was not ashamed of my chains. He was in jail. Ever, nobody, nobody wants to be identified with him. And he says, when Onesiphorus came to Rome, he searched hard for me and he found me. They didn't even know where he was. Onesiphorus had to ask questions all over town. And Onesiphorus was from Ephesus. That's what Ephesus, the Ephesian church now thought of Paul. They had left their first love They had forgotten the miracles and they'd forgotten the apostle through whom God had wrought such great revival. And I I will say this, and I'm not just saying it because it's me, but because I'm the pastor, but I have seen when people backslide from God, they will backslide from their spiritual leaders as well. You lose the love for God, you lose love for your pastor. He's more annoying than ever. So, what is Paul going to write now, 25 years later, with the revival now receding, the miracles forgotten, the church in decline, this young, uh, timid pastor, Timothy, what is he, what's he going to write to these Ephesians and to these Christians in Asia that's going to help them reclaim their inheritance? What's he going to say? And, and that's why I've been reading this book, because I want to say, okay, I think, we're, I think we're very similar to that. We're in decline. The churches have lost their first love. The, this nation is now hostile to the Christian faith. If you take a stand against certain moral issues, you will be laughed at, ridiculed, and ostracized. So... So what, is, what does Paul in the book of Ephesians say to a church 
that is in this kind of a society and in this kind of a condition. This is why I I believe God wants us to look at Ephesians. Uh, Why Ephesians? Four things and then then we're done. But number one, the first thing Paul does is, and, and it's interesting because he does not condemn them. He doesn't come out and say, all right, you're a bunch of backsliders. Get right with God or he's going to wipe you out. No, he comes and he starts by saying, verse 3, blessed, and the Greek word is eulogy to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God who has blessed us with all the blessings in Christ. He starts out with blessing. He's such an affirming message. He starts out by reminding the Christians at Ephesus of all their privileges as a Christian and reminding them of their status. Look, for example, in verse 4. He chose us. And if I said, uh, who are the chosen people? Then what would you say? It's not a trick question. Who's the chosen people? The Jews. Okay, let's, let's go with that. Paul was Jewish. He chose us. Verse 5. He predestined us. Okay. Uh, Verse 7, in him we have redemption. Now, that's an Old Testament word. That's used of the Exodus when when God brought them out out of Egypt. And look at verse 12. So that we, we Jews, who were the first to hope in Christ, the word for Messiah, we were the first. Remember, remember Paul's method to the Jew first, then to the Gentile? We were the first to hope in the Messiah. The gospel was first preached in Pentecost in Jerusalem. But then look at this wallop that he brings in in verse 13 to these Gentile Ephesians. Verse 13, in him... You also. You. He goes from second person to third person, or from third person. He goes to third, second person to third person. Okay, y'all figured it out. Uh, <laughs> but he suddenly turns, instead of saying, he chose us. Yeah. He predestined us. He, in him we have redemption. And we who were the first to hope in the Messiah and have a hope in the Messiah and a connection to the Messiah, you also, you Gentiles in Ephesus also, wallop. Absolutely. He just stuns them with that little term using all those Old Testament phrases taken right out of the Old Testament, and then, boom, applies every one of them to the Gentile Christians. Now, that'll ignite your heart. 
to realize suddenly that that which is true of the Old Testament saints is true of me. That we would put it like this. Why did Abraham leave Ur the Chaldees or Babylon and come and go south down to the land of Israel? Why did Abraham do that when he's 90 years old? Because God spoke to him. God drew him. God intervened. Acts 7, Stephen says, the God of glory appeared to him and brought him down there. He moved him. He spoke to him. He initiated and carried through the process to get Abraham from there to there. Why did Moses, who's 80 years old and spent 40 years as a shepherd, now has a family with children and is a uh, living a quiet pastoral life in the land of Midian? All of a sudden, he's now going to go to Egypt, the most powerful military in the world, and tell Pharaoh to back up because he's leading a million people into the desert. What? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? God appeared to him. God spoke to him. God gave him signs. He said, look, turn your, throw your rod on the ground, turn it into a snake, put your hand in there, turn it into a leprous. Now put it back, now it's healed. I mean, God moved miraculously in his life. Why did Paul, who's just being a good Jew in the first century, going around arresting Christians on his way to Damascus to do more damage to the church in Acts 9, all of a sudden gets knocked off his horse with this dazzling light. And, he, and he's, who are you, Lord? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, and you're persecuting me, and you're really getting on my nerves. What do you want me to do? I want you to go into the city, and I want you to stay there because I'm going to send Ananias over there. He'll tell you what to do next, but it's basically going to be get baptized and go suffer for my name. Hmm. Okay. I mean, Paul didn't sit around and just objectively evaluate the comparative religions of the world and think, I choose that one. No. These are interventions. This is election. This is predestination in the Old Testament. These are chosen people. And you also, why are you here today? Why do you have faith in Christ? Why were you born where you're born? Did God come out and say, okay, I'm going to let some of y'all be born in North Korea, some of you be born in Iran, uh, North Korea, where you'll never hear the gospel. Iran, where you hear it and believe it, you'll die. And some of you can be born in America, where there's a church in various locations, and you can go to church and hear the gospel. Who wants to go to Iran? Who wants to go to North Korea? America? Have you considered the great issues of your life? were given to you as privilege. It's like, I, I don't know. You also. It's same as Abraham and Moses and Paul. And then, and I, I'm not going to be able to finish this, but 
I want us to rethink church. Who are we as a church? Why are we here? What are we supposed to look like as a church? Ephesians will give us this. Who are our enemies? And who do we really fight? Ephesians will tell us. The, the, the power and influence of a church in a society. I was in a conference some time ago, and I, and the one, the particular one, they had these little side conferences, and I wanted to go out and, and get in, and uh, get one of those breakout sessions. So I found the room in the, this huge motel or hotel. I found the room it's in, but it's packed. In fact, they were sitting outside the door, and, uh, there were no chairs, and so I didn't want to stand for an hour. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go to one of these side rooms and get me a chair. And so I went to a side room. I got a chair. I came back, and there was a lady sitting in the floor. <laughs> I might as well not even have got the chair because now I can't. I can't sit while she's, I'm sitting in the chair and she's sitting on the floor. I wasn't raised that way. You don't sit while a woman is standing. I said, oh, do you want this chair? No, 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 no. Nah, it don't matter. Here, you take the chair and I sit on the floor. That's the way I was raised. Where did I get that? Where did I get respect and honor for women? Out of the Christian faith given to us in the Bible. You don't, you don't go anywhere else in society and in, in the nations of the world and find that unless there's been a Christian influence. I guarantee you. Uh, my wife, and we've had some doozy arguments over the years. I have never hit her. I have never smacked her. Now, she's smacked me around a couple of times. <laughs> I get severe beatings every once in a while from that little girl. Why would I not lift my hand to her? That's the way I was taught. Christ loved his bride, the church, and gave himself for her. That comes right out of Christianity. That's the power and influence of a church. Look at, look at chapter 1, verse 22. He's put all things under his feet. God did. Put all things under Jesus' feet and made him the head over all things to or for the church. All the authority of Christ is for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That just blows my mind, the, what this says about the church. The church is his body. It, the church is the visible expression of the invisible Jesus Christ. That's the same word used of Jesus in Colossians 1.19 when he says that the Son has the fullness of the Father. That is, God was in Christ, so Jesus is in his church. 
And so as Jesus abides in the Father, so we abide in Jesus. And as he, as he is sent by the Father, so we are sent by the Son. We are the reincarnation of the Son in the earth by the Holy Spirit. To touch us or any, any true biblical church is to touch the body of Christ. It's an incredible concept. We are the visible expression of Jesus in the earth. And if you look around, you say, well, that's not the prettiest people I've seen. Well, when Jesus was on earth, they didn't think he was that attractive. There was nothing in him visibly to set him apart as any different from any other man. But that's the idea of the body. I want us to rethink church. Who are we? What are we? There's the theme of God's wealth and riches that is here. You'll find this phrase a half a dozen times, the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace. And the fourth thing, reason I'm wanting to go through Ephesians is because I just feel led by the Holy Spirit. I think God wants us to do this. Max Melitzer, who was a, or is, I guess, a homeless man in Salt Lake City, Utah, was sitting on a park bench with his sparse possessions in a carriage next to him, and a man walked up and sat down next to him and started talking to him, and surprisingly to Max, this homeless man, this man, this well-dressed man, knew his name. And he began to talk to him, and he said, uh, Max, your brother in New York has died, and he has left his fortune to you. I mean, it, you know, it wasn't, wasn't billions, but uh, at least $100,000. And uh, we've come to inform you it took, I've been hired to find you and give you a bus ticket to New York so you can go and collect your money and live in the house and change your life. So uh, he seemed excited, said, said the man who found him. And uh, he'd been sleeping in abandoned cars and on park benches and said he'd be happy now to have a bed to sleep in. So he was given a bus ticket to Albany, New York, where his cousin Richard would be waiting. When the time came for the bus to arrive, though, the doors opened, everybody filed out, and Max was a no-show. And he waited, maybe thought the next bus, but he waited till all the buses had emptied. And here's this man living in poverty, never came to claim his inheritance. I don't want to die like that. I don't want to, I don't want the bus to, to be there to take me to my inheritance and I'm not on it. I don't want to lose by default. I want to claim what Jesus, the riches of his grace. I want to get in on that. And as a church. And I think this is what this epistle will do for us. It will lead us toward that.
to claim our inheritance, lest we get so accustomed to living in our poverty, we prefer it to the riches of His grace. Mm-hmm.